Usually, episodes of this podcast focus on a single book. This episode is going to be just a little different. Episode 256 takes a step back and considers a whole series. More specifically, choose your own adventure. My guests and I each chose to revisit a different individual choose your own adventure installment, so you will hear about each of them. But we spend most of our time chatting broadly about the whole body of work. The first Choose Your Own Adventure book was published in 1975 and ultimately grew into a kid-lit behemoth under the guidance of the two men credited as creators of the series, Edward Packard and Ray Montgomery. The history of Choose Your Own Adventure is fascinating, and you will hear all about it once we get into the interview. You will also hear my guests and I unpack the enduring appeal of the series, consider the significance of the so-called game book format, and swap our very different experiences reading our selected installments. We reflect on the ways in which Choose Your Own Adventure may have influenced the way we approach real-life decisions and take a look at just a few of the many essays that have been written about the series. Let's give a big SSR welcome to this week's guest, Sarah Desi. Sarah has been a lawyer, a radio DJ, a marathon runner, a historian, a bouncer, and a librarian. She lives on Vancouver Island with her husband, kids, and an assortment of forest creatures who think they are pets. Sarah's diverse romantic comedy books have appeared in Entertainment Weekly, People, Oprah Magazine, Marie Claire, The Washington Post, Pop Sugar, Bustle, USA Today, Woman's World, Hello Canada, and many more. Her latest book, To Have and to Heist, is now available wherever books are sold. When she's not laughing at her own jokes, Sarah can be found eating nachos. Visit Sarah at www.saradesi.com and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at saradesiwrites. You can also follow SSR on social media for all kinds of good stuff, including podcasts behind the scenes, updates on my personal reading, and lots and lots of Golden Retriever content. We all know that people come for the podcast, and stay for my fur baby, Irving. Find me at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you love what you hear today, and if the work I do on the show means something to you, your support would mean a lot to me. You can leave a five-star rating or review on your podcast player of choice. If you're new to the show, you can check out our extensive catalog of old episodes. You can follow and subscribe to SSR, you can take a screenshot of this episode and share it to your Instagram story, tagging me at SSRPod so I can see it. You can also take it a step further and become an SSR patron. SSR is an independent podcast, which means I am a one-woman show who operates without the financial backing of a larger organization. The contributions I get through Patreon are absolutely essential to helping the show grow and to attracting fantastic guests like Sarah. And there's plenty in it for patrons too. As an SSR supporter, you get access to lots of exclusive perks, including bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, book clubs, our Discord, and more. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. You can also find a link to join Patreon in SSR's Instagram bio. I am sending a big thank you to every patron tuning in now. If you are feeling panicky about all the books on your summer TBR that you still haven't had a chance to read, might I suggest that you get to them as audiobooks on Libro.fm. You can use code SSRPODCAST on Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, 
to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is the only place I buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. We all rely on Amazon for lots of things, but Libro.fm offers us a chance to direct our dollars elsewhere. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Give it a try and let me know what you listen to and love. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to SSR. Hi. It's very nice to be here. Today we are talking about not just one book, but a whole family of books, a whole series of books, the Choose Your Own Adventures books. Now, I will tell you a little bit about my personal experience or, quite frankly, lack thereof with Choose Your Own Adventure in a bit, but this was your suggestion. So I want to hear from you a little bit about why you suggested this series and if you had any personal experience with it when you were growing up. I definitely had a lot of experience. I think I read all the Choose Your Own Adventure books in our public library. I grew up in a very small town, and so the library was a focal point of everything in the town, and I just loved books. And I started reading my way through the whole top floor of our library, which was for kids. And they asked me if there was anything I wanted. And I'd seen the um, Choose Your Own Adventure in the Scholastic. Remember those? Yes. Fondly, fondly. <laughs> Loved getting the Scholastic flyers. Anyway, so they said, oh, well, we'll buy those ones. And so they bought as many as they could. And I just loved reading them. I love that they came to you. Like you were their representative of what, what all the kids <laughs> wanted to read. <laughs> you were their target audience, like gauging what was cool. <laughs> That's right. Do you remember what it was about this series that you loved so much? Like what was it that made you want to come back over and over again to read them? Because there were so many published over the years. I think it was, it, you know, you had one book, but you got multiple stories yeah. in that one book, you know, and you could just keep going back and flipping forward. And every time you did it, it was something new. Yeah, there was a lot of value in that. Like you, you paid probably seven or eight dollars at that time for this little paperback and you ended up getting lots of stories in one in one shot. And I also think they were written, they were written at a level that was challenging, I think, for kids, you know, they, they didn't dumb them down. I think that's what I liked about it, you know, and they dealt with all sorts of types of adventures all around the world. And so they were a little bit educational as well. Yeah, I was surprised, quite frankly, by the level of the writing. Like I when I came back to it recently to prepare for our conversation today, I wasn't expecting the prose to be at the level that it was. It is pretty like it's well done and it it gives its readers a lot of credit. And that paired with the fact that like it literally gives readers so much control of what's happening next in the book. I can imagine that if you were a kid that enjoyed the series, you probably felt very grown up and very mature just based on the way that the authors addressed you. I think that's right. Yeah. 
So I did not really ever get into this series. I was also a big library kid when I was growing up. And I've told this story on the podcast a couple of times, but I often think about my elementary school library and the fact that like there came a time when it almost seemed as though I had read everything in it. And it sounds like that might be an experience that you also had at some point, which was why they were asking for your advice. But I started looking to parts of the library that I was not as familiar with. And I remember there was this section of spinners. I'm sure everybody can picture them, those like tall white wire spinners. And those were where, like that's where a lot of the series lived. And I knew that the Choose Your Own Adventure books had been there. And for some reason, they just like never called to me. And I think this is something that we might be able to get into later when we talk about some of the like history of the series that I discovered while I was researching for today. But I never felt as though the books were written for me or like marketed to me. And this is something that also comes up on the podcast quite a bit is like the books that at least in my experience were handed to me as a girl versus the books that were handed to my classmates who were boys. And this was not a series that was ever handed to me. And so I do think I checked out one or two of the Choose Your Own Adventure books at a certain point, but I just like never got into them. And I will say that my experience reading this particular book, Journey Under the Sea as an adult, really kind of like highlights for me maybe why it wasn't necessarily like my kind of book. So Sarah, this will tell you a lot about me. I know we just met, but this might tell you a little bit about the kind of person I am. So I got into Journey Under the Sea. I was all excited. I was like, oh, I can't wait to see like what adventure I end up with. Like what's my ending going to be? There's 42 different ones. Who knows? I like get into the submarine and we're going under the sea. And when I tell you that within five minutes, I was already dead. (laughs) (laughs) It was over. It was over before it began. And it was because I was choosing. And I I sort of like walked it back and tried to analyze how this had happened to me so quickly, even as a 32-year-old who should be able to like think a step or two ahead. I was choosing what seemed like the smartest options and maybe like the safest options. And somehow that landed me dead. Uh, within five minutes of picking the book up. And so I wonder if maybe that's part of why it didn't appeal to me. Like I just, I was not naturally an adventurous kid. And that's, I don't think that's a great thing. Not something I'm proud of, but maybe I would have latched onto it more if I was able to get into the spirit of the adventure a little bit more. Uh, that, that makes sense. I, I think they're very, they, they were very much marketed towards boys. You know, when you look at the old covers and um, most of the protagonists are male or they have a, you know, a male best friend. And so for me, I had just read everything in the library. And so I was desperate. <laughs> and, you know, and when these books came, I was just, oh, so excited, you know, something new to read. And then I did get into them. But, you know, I do think that that would turn girls off, I, I, you know, just back back in those times when you're sort of directed to towards something else. But I think the benefit of it is is that you can really, you could be someone who's not adventurous, but the book gives you the chance to be adventurous and to say, okay, well, you know, I took the safe option and I died in, you know, in the first five minutes, but now I have a chance to be that kind of adventurous person that maybe I'm not in real life and you get a chance to do that. Yeah, this reading experience, even the five minute journey I took to the journey under the sea and then was killed by sharks. It sort of like gave me a weird opportunity for self-reflection that I wasn't really expecting because I was like, hmm, I was remembering my child self and thinking about the fact that I was not inherently adventurous. And I can imagine that 
that might have been a reason that these books didn't necessarily pull me in. But to your point, Sarah, like, I think that there's another way to look at it, which is like, this could have given me a chance to explore taking risks that I wouldn't have been open to when I was a kid. And I did want to call out, there are like so many great essays about this series online, but there's one in particular called The Enduring Allure of Choose Your Own Adventure Books. And it was written in The New Yorker in 2022. And I so related to the opening paragraph. It says, you were a girl who wanted to choose your own adventures, which is to say you were a girl who never had adventures. You always followed the rules, but when you ate an entire sleeve of graham crackers and sank into the couch with a choose-your-own-adventure book, you got to imagine that you were getting into trouble in outer space or in the future or under the sea. You got to make choices every few pages. Do you ask the ghost about her intentions or run away? Do you rebel against the alien overlords or blindly obey them? And I was like, this is what I was missing. Like, I was the girl (laughs) who wanted to be so in control of her adventures that she ended up not having adventures. So I should have just, like, allowed myself to just let go and be in these books. They they were fabulous. I, I wanted to read another one before this. And I read The Abominable Snowman, which was very cool. Did you also die immediately or did you have a little bit more? I didn't because I took the adventurous option. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) think after growing up and having lots of adventures of my own, I was ready to take the adventures. It is interesting to me. And like, I know every book is different, but I wonder if there's like a pattern throughout the series where you're kind of rewarded for doing things that are more risky or interesting because I do feel like I yes I took a pretty predictable path in my adult reading experience and it obviously ended very quickly so I wonder if when they were constructing these stories there was any logic to encouraging kids or like incentivizing them to do things that were perhaps a little less safe yeah, that, that I think that's true because the ones where I went through and took the riskier options always seemed to turn out quite well. Mm. Do you remember when you were a kid, like, did you play out all of the different scenarios? Like, how did you sort of interact with these books? Because they created this whole new category. They called them game books in the 70s and 80s when they first started coming out. And I would imagine that like, especially right when they came out, everybody was like, wow, we've never seen anything like this before. And it required kids and parents and librarians to figure out a whole new way to read. So I'd love if you can remember anything about how you actually interacted with them, if you could share it with us. Oh, sure. I I, I totally remember. <laughs> I remember all the books I read. Tell us everything. We want to hear everything. <laughs> well, I always started off, I, I went through and I, I went with my gut reaction okay. on the first the first read through. And then if I, if something really irritated me, then I would go back to the point where I knew I'd made a decision that was a bad decision and I'd remake the decision and take it another way. I rare, I very rarely went back to the beginning. Okay. You know, like I would, you know, my first couple of decisions I was always happy with, but then, you know, it would go on some, terrible twist or turn that I didn't like and so I'd flip back to that particular time and I remember I would use little pieces of paper to remind me where I'd made certain decisions so that I could go back 
I did like that feeling of being in control. And I really like the feeling of, well, you know, I made a bad decision, but I can change it. Mm. You know, you don't get that in real life. <laughs> you don't get a redo of your bad decisions. <laughs> you just have to live with them. But in those books, you could. You could find out where you'd gone wrong and you could correct that mistake. I love how you left a paper trail for yourself. I feel like I did. maybe that predicted <laughs> your future as an author where you were like plotting things backwards. <laughs> Potentially. So I found a lot of different essays online, as I mentioned, about this series. And to your point about the ability in Choose Your Own Adventure books to have like a second chance if you make a bad choice, there are two schools of thought when people are reflecting on this series. And I thought it was kind of interesting because some of the essays that I read talk about how this series sort of like created more anxiety about decision making for them because there's just this like rapid fire pressure to make decisions and sometimes you were wrong and it just added all this pressure but then the other group of people talked about how when they practiced making choices in these choose your own adventure books it made them realize that there's no such thing as like a quote right or wrong decision and that it's generally much more complicated than that and of course, like the stakes are always changing as we grow up and the stakes were very different from one book to the next in this series. But I did think it was really interesting to read these different takes on how a book series, like a fairly, you know, I mean, these books are not, they're slim, you know, they're not these really long tomes, but people have so much to say about the way they impacted the way they approach decision making, even as grownups. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one thing I noticed about the books, though, is the text is quite dense. Yes, yes. The text is small and it's printed together. And I've I've got three teenagers, so I've redone my whole childhood books. You know, I, I had them read them and I know all the current books that they're reading. And there seems to have been a shift. You know, the text is bigger, the text is more spaced out. So for these books, I think that if they were reprinted today, the way the books are printed, they'd be much thicker books. You know, you'd really feel that you were getting a lot more <laughs> value and a lot more stories with, with a, a bigger size of font. I echo that. And as somebody who has now ordered from thrift books, their fair share of books that were printed around the same time period, even relative to other books of the same era, this this text is really dense and just looks very different. So I also thought that was interesting. If you're open to it, I'd love to talk through some of the history of this series because it's really interesting. And I think it kind of informs the way that the stories are structured. And I think we can kind of weave our thoughts on the narrative into this little history lesson too, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Okay, so the books are credited um, to these two men. The first creator was a man named Edward Packer, who was a lawyer. And interestingly, both Edward Packard and his co-creator, R.A. Montgomery, they really started picking up momentum with these books soon after they were divorced and became single fathers. And Edward Packard first developed this sort of choose-your-own-adventure format when he was telling bedtime stories to his daughters he had this character named Pete that he came back to again and again, and he was always telling them about different adventures that Pete was having. And he came to a point, and I wonder if you can relate to this as a parent, where he like ran out of things for Pete to do. <laughs> and he just like wasn't sure what story to tell anymore. So he was looking at his two daughters, and he decided that he would just kind of ask them what they might do if they were Pete in these different situations. And they both chose different things. 
And they responded to it with so much enthusiasm that he wondered if he might be able to write it down and kind of capture that energy and share it with more kids. So he started using his commute time while he was going in and out of New York City to the law firm to write a manuscript that would become the first iteration of Choose Your Own Adventure. And he pitched it to nine publishers and was rejected by all of them. And I feel like that is like such a classic story in the world of publishing. Like it can just be such a haul. I love hearing stories about how people, you know, came up with these brilliant ideas and then got rejected by everybody. And then, of course, it's it's like the Harry Potter series. Yeah. They become like some of the biggest, most best-selling series ever. Yeah, I mean, this series to this day is still, I believe, the fourth best-selling children's series of all time. It sold millions and millions and millions of copies. Even now, when the books are like really not as much of a craze they still sell like I think close to a million copies a year which I was not expecting at all so yes those nine publishers I'm sure are feeling really silly but Edward Packard ultimately made a deal with this guy named Ray Montgomery who ran a small press in Vermont and convinced him to take a chance with this first manuscript and the resources of this small press were tight. So Edward Packard had to contribute some of his own funds to get that first printing going. Um, And they actually Xeroxed 60 copies. And that's how they got like their first distribution out. And they gave those 60 copies to kids at a local school as sort of like a focus group. Um, So Sarah, can you imagine if you were like out Xeroxing copies of your first book and like handing it out? (laughs) Those are great stories. Yeah, really good stories. So they started doing this and the first the first book that came out through the small press sold 8,000 copies in 1978, which is actually a lot for a small press. I mean, it's a lot for anybody, but especially a smaller press. And ultimately they took it to Bantam, which is a division of Random House. And Bantam agreed to start publishing um, the series because they saw the track record that they'd built up at the small press. And the rest, as far as like the publishing home for this series is basically history I thought it was really interesting that Ray Montgomery who was the the owner of that small press he actually worked as what's called a scenario developer for the Peace Corps and Con Edison before he got into printing and publishing and so when he came on board to work with Edward Packard on the series he not only was the guy who could print the books but he had this background in like writing and developing scenarios like I didn't know what a scenario developer was before I did this research but I guess his actual job was to write these second person scenarios to present to people in the Peace Corps and employees of Con Edison that would prompt them to kind of understand what they might do in certain scenarios on the job. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, so he was kind of the perfect fit. And to our earlier conversation about kind of the target audience for this book, Edward Packard really wanted the books to have appeal to both boys and girls because he had these daughters that had been the original inspiration for the series. But the publisher felt really strongly about marketing the series primarily to boys. There's this like conventional wisdom in the publishing industry that I've read about again and again doing this show where... Girls will read stories about boys, but boys won't read stories about girls, which is just kind of interesting to think about. Um, But yeah, so they were like, no, this is a, we're really targeting boys with this. And uh, yeah, so we're going to pretty much lead with sort of masculine branding. It's going to look tough and strong. And while the second person protagonist in these books is never described, 
the illustrations typically point to the character being a boy or a man, and they really stuck with that target demographic. Oh, I never thought about that, but I, you know, I think that's right. The one that I got, um, the Abominable Snowman, it's a, like a 40th anniversary edition. Okay. I'm just looking, flipping through it, like as you're talking, but I think they might have changed some of the, you know, some of the illustrations because they are sort of more gender neutral. Interesting. I'd say. Okay, so I, I can, I have an older copy. You can see it on my screen. Sarah, and I'll show you, like, it's all, it's all pretty clearly yeah. <laughs> boys and men. You're showing me a picture of boys. <laughs> Just a bunch of boys looking tough, looking strong, looking brawny, fighting sharks. Yeah. I never got to that point because I was killed by a shark on page, you know, eight. Yeah, here's some more men. And I do think it's a missed opportunity because I think that there's so much power in, like, the branding and the marketing and the packaging of a series and I wonder if they would have, look, I mean, they didn't need advice from me or from us. Clearly they did just fine, but I wonder if they could have been even bigger if they had taken Edward Packard's advice and appealed to an even broader audience. It's very different time when they started writing those books to, you know, what we see now and the diversity in, in children's literature. It just wasn't there back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't see much diversity in my version of the story that I read of Journey Under the Sea. But even as I was going through the other pages, like it's a very whitewashed, like the implication is that this is like a, probably a white boy. But then again, like, I guess if we are to run with the notion that the idea here is for the reader to insert themselves into the story, there is opportunity here for any kid to be the hero. But I, I just, I I think that there would potentially be other ways to market it today if they were to yeah. to revisit. I will say there are new installments coming out. They're not published by Bantam anymore because the license ran out. But there's like a smaller printing press that does still produce new Choose Your Own Adventure books. And I saw there's one coming out in October called Sister from the Multiverse. So it seems like maybe they are starting to market more toward girl readers. They have one called Glitter Pony Farm, which feels like it's maybe pandering a little bit toward little girls, but okay. Yeah, there's like a whole range. So listeners, I can link this in the show notes that you can see what's coming next. But it's interesting to see how they're continuing to evolve the series. I'm curious, like what other twists and turns your journey took, Sarah, as you were the abominable snowman? Like what were some of the like <laughs> higher tension moments? What I thought was interesting so the, the basic premise of it is that you've become an expert hiker and you meet your best friend Carlos at a hiking um, camp and someone tells you about the Yeti in Nepal and you guys decide that you're going to go to Kathmandu and you're going to find this Yeti. And in one of the stories, I wound up uh, floating through space in, and going to Shangri-La, led by this Yeti, leaving all my worldly body behind, <laughs> which I was not prepared for that level <laughs> of, you know, and uh, other ones, I got sent home or I got arrested <laughs> for doing bad things. But what I thought was really interesting, poor Carlos, so, so many terrible things happen to poor Carlos, my friend, like he gets lost on the mountain. In. he gets left behind he gets frozen in time carlos is sort of the equivalent of the um, star trek expendable crew member oh, poor carlos 
and it was it's never really a partnership with you and Carlos. It's sort of like you making decisions and then something terrible happens to Carlos. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, as far as I got in my adventure, I was only ever responsible for myself. Yeah. And I know from like skimming through it that there are other characters that get involved. And even from the illustrations that I showed you on camera, Sarah, like obviously my actions as the you in the book would ultimately affect other people. But I can't, I can't imagine like being a 10 year old kid and taking on the responsibility and being like, yes, like Carlos is my friend and we are on this adventure together. That's a lot of pressure. It really is. And a lot of the questions were, you know, do you go after the Yeti? You know, some mysterious person comes to talk to you while you guys are sleeping in your tent, but of course only you hear him and says, oh, you can come with me to see the Yeti, but you have to leave Carlos behind. You know, and then your question is, do you leave Carlos behind or do you do you wake Carlos up? And then you do another adventure and then and, and, and it's the same thing. Do you go after Carlos because he's lost or do you pursue your adventure? And you're just, <laughs> just like, you know, this is a terrible dilemma for children who, you know, with friends are so important to children, especially around the the age that I think the target market is for this book. And, and now you have to choose your, you know, between your adventure and your friend and something terrible might happen to your friend, which usually it does if you make the choice of pursuing your adventure. Yes, but unlike me, you don't die immediately. So you really have to make a choice. That's true. I think you're very traumatized by your early death there. Well, I think I feel silly. <laughs> Like, I think I feel, I think I feel that I just missed the point, even as an adult who was like supposed to sort of be thinking ahead of what was going to happen next. And I am like, oh, duh, like I should have not, I, where did I go wrong that this all, how did it all end so fast? I think that's what it is where I'm like, how did I just, I, I just missed all of the signs of where I was supposed to go next. I do think it's interesting that yours had these like existential questions. I was reading um, in one of the articles about the series that the two creators that I mentioned before, so they wrote most of the books. They, they took credit for most of the original books. And apparently you can tell pretty clearly if you know a little bit about them, which one might have written the book that you read. So Packard tended to go for the more like practical books, like his choices that he wrote about were often a little bit more um, tangible. They were like black and white questions. Are you going to do A or are you going to do B? Whereas Montgomery, and I thought this was kind of fascinating given the fact that he comes from this like scenario development background. He went for these like wackier plots. So I'm thinking maybe he wrote yours because the fact that like you were arrested and you were in space, like none of these things seem connected to each other. But he also tended to include these more like existential or like ethical questions. So it seems to me maybe he wrote yours and Packard wrote mine. Yeah, it, it, he, he's listed as the only author on mine. Oh, he is? Okay, that's yeah, interesting. Montgomery. Oh, wait, mine is also listed as Montgomery, which is surprising to me just based on what I learned about him. This is only book two of the series. So maybe in book two, he had yet to sort of embrace the wackiness that he would one day uh, chase in his books. I also wanted to point out just in terms of like the setup for these, I really loved the introduction um, and the way that the story is set up. And I, I think that this probably speaks a lot to the success of this series. The first page of the book says, beware and warning. This book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. 
There are dangers, choices, adventures, and consequences. You must use all of your numerous talents and much of your enormous intelligence. The wrong decision could end in disaster, even death. But don't despair. At any time, you can go back and make another choice, alter the path of your story, and change its result. Now enter the mysterious and beautiful world of Atlantis. You may become famous. You might decide never to return to the Earth world above, or you may not get a chance to make that decision. Whatever happens, good luck. And I wanted to say two things about this. I think, first of all, it obviously gives kid readers a great deal of agency, which I think is something that most young people don't feel like they have in life. Like they don't get the chance to make even small choices for themselves. So just being told by an adult author that like they get to make the rules in this imaginary world is really empowering. But I also want to point out the fact that we recently read for the podcast one of the books in the series of Unfortunate Events series. And that book does a similar kind of like fourth wall breaking thing where it speaks directly to readers in the first page or two and basically says like, don't read this book. Like whatever you do, don't read this book. It's not like other books. It's not going to end happily. And I think with that book series, you know, there's like all this research about like kids will read if you tell them not to. Like there's this whole, you know, logic to that. But I think the choose your own adventure series kind of does something similar because it's like wait 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 like this isn't like any other book you ever read so I wonder if that helped reluctant readers who are kids who are like just exploring books in the library think that this is something they could actually be interested in well it's almost like a dare for them and and don't kids just love that you know oh they love dares and I I thought it was also kind of cool like and sad you know for fans of the series but apparently this book series really started to take a dive in readership and sales once computer games became more popular and more accessible to kids. And it makes sense to me because like I was a 90s kid. I grew up in the era of CD-ROMs and like I remember the old school version of the Oregon Trail and it was this like really basic interface. And this is exactly how you played the original version of Oregon Trail. Like a prompt would pop up and it would be like, do you want to forward the stream or not? And like, you would just pick, you know, it wasn't this like beautiful graphic experience. It would just be about making choices. And so it's as though like the same format that was appealing to kids in these game books just then transferred over into computer games. And the readers who were interested in Choose Your Own Adventure because of the format just sort of like shifted their focus over to to computer games instead. And it does seem like they're they're they were a precursor for the pre- the computer games because all the adventure games are are just like you said you know you go into a house you talk to a guy he gives you gives you an item then you have to choose where you're going to go or what you're going to do with it and you know then you make your next choice and and you don't know where that's going to take you right I mean even now like of course the graphics are much more impressive but that's still the basic foundation of pretty much any game I'm not like a gamer but. As far as I know, that's still kind of how computer games and video games work. And I, I was thinking um, what I've noticed with, with the kids now is they do spend a lot of time online, but there's been a shift, at least, you know, in the schools around where I am, to the kids actually wanting physical books, mm-hmm. you know, because that becomes more of a break for them. It becomes, you know, something different to do if they're spending all their time online gaming. So I'm hoping that these books, you know, have a resurgence because they they are so, so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this Choose Your Own Adventure series spurned like lots of rival series from other publishers that had a similar format, but went a different direction with it. 
I'm curious, based on what you just said, Sarah, about the increased interest in actually looking at physical books. I know you said you have teenagers. Do you think that any iteration of this kind of choose your own adventure game book would appeal to to them, to their friends, generally to kids in 2023? Well, I bought my kids these books. Oh, you did? When they were growing up. Yeah, because, you know, I had enjoyed them so much and I thought they would too. And they did not the same way I did. And I think it's more because back then there were no computer games and, and really reading was, if you were a reader, that was that was your, <laughs> your full-time passion. Yes, that was my identity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, they did read quite a lot of them. You know, we were always switching them over in the library um, and they were always looking for something new. And so they, they you know, they did go through our house and uh, a couple of times their friends picked them up and and they started reading them and that's what you always hope to see yeah I can see how if you were reading them with a friend or like with a sibling it could also create like a fun conversation because you might be making the choices together or disagreeing about what you should do next and like that could be a really fun interactive reading experience which I didn't grow up with siblings in my house when I was really young so I didn't have that but I can see how if you like live in a house with kids who are around your age, like it could actually be a really fun family activity. We used to fight over because I grew up with, there was five kids in my family and we used to fight over the books. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then we used to make fun of each other for the, you know, if you got killed, whoever got killed first got mocked over dinner. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why they called it game books. Like it really is a yeah. game and it's, I'm trying to like wrap my head around what a contemporary version of this series would look like and it is hard for me to imagine like to think about it divorced from technology because of course my mind immediately goes to like oh how cool would it be if it was set up as an ebook and you could just like tap at the bottom of the page which direction you wanted to take or which choice you wanted to make and then it's basically a video game like it is hard to separate this format of a book from our technological capabilities now just kind of like knowing what I know about what's out there and I don't know it it would be cool to see how a publisher might be able to reinvent the series in a way that would like appeal to 2023 kids and teens while keeping it still in this like old school paper format. Um, I have a friend who actually took the choose your own adventure format to romance mm. and she did a couple of choose your own adventure romances. Um, they're digital books. That's so cool. Yeah. So you got to meet the guy and then you got to decide what you were going to do. Did you go on a date with him or not? Did you, you know, have a drink with him or not? Anyway, they were really fun. Do you want to shout out the title or the author? Uh, the author's Dare St. Denis. Okay, great. Check those out. I did find a fun fact, which is that the first Choose Your Own Adventure style book that was ever introduced to the American public was in the 30s. And it actually was a romance and it like blew people's mind. But then people weren't really doing it in romance for many years because Choose Your Own Adventure came in and was like, no, it's going to be all like going to space and I don't know, fighting snow monsters. That's so cool that your friend went in the direction of romance. I can see how that would be really fun. Oh, yeah. They, they were great. A great series of books. So on the whole, after revisiting the snow monster, the Yeti that you had, after having this conversation with me about Choose Your Own Adventure, do you think that this series holds up to your memories of it or has it let you down? No, it, I thought, actually, I enjoyed it 
even more, I think, than I did when I was a kid. You know, I got lost in it. I thought, oh, I'll just do one or two adventures, you know, to get prepared for the podcast. And then, you know, I'm still sitting there half an hour later. I'm like, no, I didn't like that. I want to find the Yeti. I have to start again. <laughs> so it was it was just as fun. And I think it's part nostalgia yeah. because I'd done it before and part sort of novelty, you know, because adults don't get a chance to read these kinds of books. Yeah, I wonder if there's also something to the fact that like now as an adult, you have been faced with like actual stakes. Like if you do make the quote wrong decision, something might actually happen. Like there is a ripple effect to your choices and it is sort of liberating once you've had that experience in the real world to just like get to mess around and like see what happens if you try different things. And then as you said, like go back and try it again. Like it is freeing. One of the um, essays that I read talked about decision fatigue and how that's like something that we talk about now and how like choose your own adventure was kind of an early nod to what decision fatigue might look like for us now. So um, listeners, like I said, there's a lot of just kind of cool um, reflection out there about this series. And I will include links to all of the things that I found in the show notes for the episode. But Sarah, other than your nostalgic walk down memory lane back to the Choose Your Own Adventure series, I'd love to hear more about anything else that you've been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners. We're heading into the final stretch of summer reading what should they be putting into their beach bags or their pool bags to enjoy? I've been reading lots of great diverse book. Just finished Dating Dr. Dill by Nisha Sharma, which was so fun. Really enjoyed that one. And K.M. Jackson's book, I can't remember, it's about Keanu Reeves, where she's chasing Keanu Reeves. That was really super fun and very timely because I just saw the um, the last, oh, what's Keanu Reeves the series that he d- he did where he's on this quest. I can't remember. Anyway, I just saw him in a movie. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, now I have to read a book with him in it. So that was really fun. Both of those authors are former SSR guests, too. So, Oh, well, there we go. Love that synergy. I'll include links to both of those books in the show notes along with the links to those essays that I mentioned. And that brings us to a conversation about your new book, Sarah, To Have and To Heist, which came out last month in July. Congratulations on that. And I would love if you would share a little bit more about it with us. Well, it's sort of, it's very adventure just like the Choose Your Own Adventure books, except I got to choose the adventure and you guys have to follow along. <laughs> but it's sort of a mashup of romance and mystery and comedy and heist. And um, I just love heist movies. I, I'm always watching heist movies. I of Now You See Me and Ocean's Eleven and The Italian Job. And I really wanted to bring that energy and that fun to romance. And so my book's about this woman and she's having a really hard time in life. She's lost her job and her apartment flooded and her parents are trying to set her up with all these weird guys because they're desperate to see her married. And she's got this ride or die best friend um, and her friend winds up getting framed for the theft off a $25 million necklace. And our main character, Simi, is just not going to let that happen. And she'll do anything to save her friend. And she meets this very mysterious, roguish guy. And I was sort of thinking Mal from Firefly and, you know, Indiana Jones mashup kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> little roguish and a little mysterious. Um, and he says, you know, I can help you 
get the necklace. We just have to steal it from this mafia boss. And so she has to put together a crew to, um, to pull this off. And she puts together a crew of people from her life, people that she knows. So her Uber driver who took her to try and save her friend um, becomes their driver. And this guy that her parents tried to set her up with, who's very geeky but smart, she brings him into the crew as their gadget guy. And her landlady is a very sex positive 80 year old woman and she's brought into the crew and so she yeah she puts together a group of of people who you really wouldn't think get together but these are all people who they're missing something in their life and they sort of come together as not just as a crew but as a family and all these terrible things happen of course because it's a heist and nothing ever goes right but it's i hope people have fun along the way as they um, go through their adventure. Well, it sounds like a great cast of characters and it must've been fun to write. It was super fun. I really, um, I had I, I had a lot of laughs writing it and sharing it with my, um, my beta readers as I went along. Great. Well, now more people can read it and share in that fun with you listeners. Again, the title of the book is To Have and To Heist. Sarah, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Oh, thanks very much. It's been really fun taking this walk down memory lane and reading a book I don't think I would have picked it up again, but it's been fun to read it again. Great. And choosing your own adventures, you know, it never gets old. <laughs> thank you. Thank you again. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.